0: This is David Barris, President of the American Association of Bank Directors. This is our third podcast on bank mergers and acquisitions. The subject today is an evaluation of factors as to why a bank may decide to become a buyer of other banks or a seller of itself, or to do neither. Dave Martin will join us again to share his experience with these issues with numerous bank and bank board clients. We welcome any questions or suggestions you might have. All right, let's call Dave. Welcome, Dave.
1: Thanks. Glad to be with you.
0: Today, we'd like to learn more from you about representing buyers and sellers and the factors that you look for and the bank board should be looking for in deciding whether their bank should be a buyer or seller or neither.
1: Well, glad to. And and. Putting it in the simplest terms, how does a bank know if it's a buyer or a seller or neither? Ideally, the answer should come out of their strategic planning process. And frankly, I think it often does, whether it's a formal process or an informal process. But it comes out of that step in the process that's called strategic options. When a bank accurately ex- assesses its strengths and weaknesses and determines that it has the currency and the balance sheet strength and the management to be a significantly larger bank, acquisitions are the obvious path to larger scale. In the opposite situation, if a bank is not performing up to its hopes and doesn't see how it can change that situation, it's a candidate for sale. But of course, that's never simple. It's hard to come to that conclusion. I'm going to briefly describe the apparent strategies of several banks that I knew well or that I've observed over several years. Two are acquirers and will continue to be acquirers, and three were sellers and sold. But they sold for three very different reasons. I had a chance to observe the acquisition side of the M&A process while I was with Mellon Bank. In the early 1980s, the branching law changed in Pennsylvania and for the first time allowed much wider branch expansion within the state. In Mellon's SWOT analysis, and they did a formal SWOT analysis, the law change was an opportunity, and the bank moved quickly to acquire several banks that gave it almost a statewide franchise. My job at Mellon was to find those banks, and to carry out the acquisitions. As you can imagine, after a while, word got around, so if a bank was willing to take my phone call and then actually let me in the door, chances were pretty good that they were at least willing to talk about selling. Uh, There were some cases, I'm sure, where they were just trying to toy with a big bank, but a lot of them were sincere, and we did several acquisitions as a result of that. One of the sellers, and it was one of Mellon's early acquisitions, was also one of the most interesting. It was an excellent performer in an attractive market. So how did they arrive at their decision to sell? My impression is that they had gone through the classic planning process and determined that they wouldn't be able to continue to produce excellent numbers. If they had decided to be a buyer after the law changed, they would have had to compete with Mellon and several other much larger acquirers but if they decided to sell and sold early, they could choose from several acquirers and get the natural benefits of an auction. They were right. The sale gave them a significant premium, a higher dividend, and liquidity that they never had. Naturally, there were staff cuts, but there were also attractive career opportunities for their employees in the much larger Mellon system. It was a success for both sides. The second seller I want to talk about was in a no-growth post-industrial market. It's the kind of market I'm familiar with out here in western Pennsylvania. It wasn't in distress, but it was in a slow decline and so saw no easy way to turn the bank around. They couldn't be an acquirer, and when they decided to sell, their decision was a result of a lengthy planning process that I was able to observe. I actually participated in it. Their market was already over-branched by any measure, and they weren't financially able to be an acquirer. They set up an auction and received an att- attractive premium in the deal. An interesting sidelight, the seller's CEO, a very competent guy, went on the buyer's board and eventually became chairman of the acquirer. Uh, and I think he's retired now. One more seller Unlike the first two I mentioned, this bank had to sell, and this is a sad story. Uh, And in spite of that, it didn't come to the conclusion easily or quickly. It was a small bank that had branched too aggressively and meanwhile made some major interest rate bets. Uh, It took too long for the new branches to become profitable, and the money market bets they made turned sour. The CFO, a good guy, in a sort of gallows humor, told me that they'd be all right as long as interest rates didn't go up or down. Uh, Obviously, their actions were not the result of a carefully built strategy. They simply dug a hole and they couldn't climb out of it. There were no winners when they sold. They did sell, but it was not a win. Because selling is never easy, many banks that should sell don't. And that can turn out badly for various reasons. For example, and maybe the most important is, the buyer-seller ratio in the bank's market can deteriorate. In fact, it will almost always deteriorate as potential buyers uh, buy up what they want and uh, get what they want in that market and then stop buying. I've seen that happen in western Pennsylvania where I live. What that means is that when a seller waits too long, there may not be many potential buyers left, or in the other case, the seller can become relatively too small to be attractive. All the neighboring buyers have gotten much bigger. The bank doesn't actually get smaller, but it becomes too small to be economic to buy at any significant premium because the buyers have gotten bigger and bought what they want in that market. One of the most difficult assignments I've ever had was to sell a bank that was exactly in that situation. We eventually sold it, uh, but the price was well below prevailing deal prices. I saw a potential variation of that situation recently when you asked me to take a look at a bank that might be interested in our core course. I assume this audience knows what the core course is, David, but if you want to say it, describe it for a minute, um, this would be a good time.
0: Uh, Yes, it's a six-hour course, very detailed, uh, covering the very basics that bank directors both new and experienced need to be as valuable as they can be as board members. And we also have the side benefit of the banks whose directors participate uh will be receiving uh, discounts on DNO insurance from AmTrust, a sponsor of ABD.
1: Thanks, that's uh that's the way I remember it. When I'm preparing to do one of those core course presentations, as you know, I always do some research on their numbers. I like to get a feel for the bank, and I always start with a peer comparison. In other words, comparing the bank to other banks its size in its market or nearby markets. I did a scan for banks the size of our prospective client, looking for banks its size in its market, and there weren't any. And there weren't banks of any size. Um, The closest banks were 10 or 20 miles away, and they were branches of much larger banks. So my peer comparison, I went ahead with it, pitted our prospective clients against much larger banks, and guess what? Its performance numbers were generally right up there with the much larger banks. My guess is that if they've done a strategic plan, they're not thinking of either buying, since there's nothing they could buy, uh, and the larger banks uh, that already that wanted to be in the market wouldn't be buyers for their bank because they could just simply open a branch. My bet is that they expect to continue to grow organically using a high-touch strategy. Do you remember that term, high-touch? It's probably what they're doing. Uh, If they hire us, we can ask them if that's their strategy. Something they're doing is producing very good numbers. Up to now, I've talked about sellers, just about sellers. The story for buyers is in some ways much simpler They're usually going for scale, for economies of scale, and as you know, economies of scale in banking are really there and they're very obvious and they're attainable. But the successful acquirers, in my view, are going for more than just scale. They're often going for market share or market improvement to improve the demographics of their market. They may be going for new business lines and lots of other reasons. There are lots of strategies and examples. Some have done it well, some haven't. Some very large banks have stubbed their toes very publicly, but most, if not all, of the largest banks in the country today are the result of a series of acquisitions over decades. But those mergers are out of the range we're talking about. We're talking about community banks. I'm going to describe two serial acquirers. They've done several that were community banks when they started. They aren't community banks anymore. They're big banks now. They're both headquartered in relatively low growth markets. One of them seemed to be driven primarily by market extension, targeting banks in nearby contiguous markets that they wanted to be in. And then later, they'd increase those their share in those uh, nearby markets with additional acquisitions the most distinguishing characteristic of their prop process and probably still is their post merger integration which was fast and decisive with the result i believe that new targets knew exactly what they were getting into what i mean by that is the targets knew quickly which staff cuts would be made and they expected them the second serial acquirer and by the way that that first acquirer i was talking about continues to produce exceptional numbers and has, uh, for example, a an excellent efficiency ratio as you'd expect. The second serial acquirer, which is also in a low-growth market or headquartered in a low-growth market, started the same way with relatively small in-market and contiguous market acquisitions, but then the banks t- seemed to shift to larger bites in much more demographically attractive markets that weren't contiguous uh, and in the largest case, not even close to contiguous. They were seeking scale, but I think more market improvement. They got both, of course, but it's too early to tell if the market has embraced their strategy. And in this stock market, of course, it's hard to tell. Uh, I'm concerned about it. Finally, Uh, I'd like to mention just another favorite topic of mine, mergers of equals. They're a great idea, but they're hard to do. How do I know that? I've never been able to do one, and I've tried. Why are they so difficult? The reason is that every question that's relatively easy to answer in a typical big bank, small bank acquisition is difficult in a merger of equals. Decisions like the name of the bank, the headquarters location, who's going to be the CEO, how many board seats will each side get, all of those things and lots more have to be negotiated. But in my experience, that's not what makes MOEs difficult. What makes them difficult to negotiate and then to integrate after the merger has taken place is that the penalties and rewards that are inherent for both sides in a typical buyer-seller deal are absent in an MOE. What are those? In a typical deal, the buyer's reward is scale, maybe market improvement, maybe some other benefits. What are the buyer's penalties? They're obvious. In a typical buyer-seller deal, the buyer is going to suffer earnings per share dilution and tangible capital dilution, and he has an incentive to earn those back fast. If he doesn't, the market will penalize him. The seller's rewards are a premium price, more liquidity, probably a higher dividend. What's his pain? Well, we know. Staff reductions, loss of identity, maybe more. All of those rewards and penalties are absent in an MOE. The incentive to reach an agreement isn't there, and the incentive to recover the dilution after the deal is done because there's less dilution. Um, I think we'll see more MOEs but it's a good idea to remember they're hard to do. One of the biggest MOEs ever, truest, was just consummated, and we can watch and see how that goes. Those are all the M&A items I had on my list, David.
0: Thank you, Dave, and we'll see you next time.
1: Thank you.